Welcome to the Premium Finance Show. Interviews and insights from industry professionals, helping you use financed insurance to provide tax-free withdrawals and extended estate protection. The Premium Finance Show is brought to you by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Find out more at yourpodcast.team. Now here's your host, John McDonough. How do you increase yield in your portfolio while at the same time reducing the overall risk? It's by adding alternative asset classes. On this episode of the Premium Finance Show, we talk with Dory Wiley, President and CEO of Commerce Street Holdings. Most of the time, people have the traditional stock, bond, portfolio mix with their financial advisors. Dory's decades of experience bring in investment banking, capital raises, as well as other retirement solutions, as well as his opinion on where life insurance as an asset class, especially premium finance insurance as an asset class, helps reduce the overall risk of a high net worth individual's overall portfolio. This is an excellent episode and very timely. You don't want to miss it. See inside. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Premium Finance Show. And I've got Dory Wiley with Commerce Street Holdings joining us today. And Dory, I've been really looking forward to our conversation. How are you today? I'm doing great, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Yes, sir. So you're no stranger to the camera. I mean, you do lots of segments on financial matters around the country and on national broadcast. So thanks for taking the time to bless us with your presence on the Premium Finance Show. You're definitely bringing the quality up from on the Premium Finance Show. Well, I don't know about that. I think I broke many a camera lens, you know. <laughs> do a little facial retouch on this. It'll work out great. <laughs> yeah. You know, my grandfather used to tell me I have a face for radio. So <laughs> I've been told the same on my voice. Yeah. So let's kind of dig in. If you wouldn't mind, could you give us the background of Commerce Street Holdings for the listeners and then your background as well? Sure. So starting with Commerce Street, we were formed out of a friendly lift out and spin out in 2007. However, the core of the firm has been around since 1989 when my partner started the company of Samco and then Commerce Street in 2007. We have a holding company, we have a broker dealer, and we have a an RIA, an investment advisor. The holding, the broker dealer is the deal business and the placement business, very heavy in the banking sector. And then we also do energy and manufacturing, healthcare, technology, et cetera. We sell private placements out of all those industries as far as equities and debt and whatnot, the high net worth individuals and qualified clients as well. And then we also mark alternative asset funds out of the broker dealer and that's all across all sectors from hedge funds to private equity real estate venture capital etc on the management side we do outsource chief investment officer business a la carte which basically means we can do portfolio we can do alternative assets we can do sections of alternative assets whether in real estate private equity or hedge funds or whatnot we manage about two billion in private equity and we also are in the retirement business fastest growing retirement provider in the state of texas so we're very growing very much in cash balance plans 401k self-directed IRAs. very nice in your background specifically my background don't let the brooklyn accent throw you off but uh, <laughs> texas 
small cotton farming community working on a uh, cotton farm growing up. I went to Texas Tech University, got a degree in finance and accounting, came to Dallas. I've been adjusting ever since for the last 35 years and got my master's and still felt ignorant and insecure. So got a CPA, CFA, CBA. I don't know. I think I'm the most licensed individual in the state of Texas in the securities business. So anyway, still learning. I might be in the continuing ed business. I was going to uh, say, that's lots of continuing <laughs> ed. <laughs> yeah, I started out as a risk manager, portfolio manager for a bank in the 80s, uh, then moved to a broker dealer, a very large regional firm based in Dallas that sold out years ago to RBC. Uh, in Canada, but it's called Rousher Pierce Refness, if you remember that far back. I became head of the financial institutions group where we did deals and capital raises and managed many bank bond portfolios. From there, I joined my partner, Tex, in 1996, and I've done about 200 plus bank deals, helped grow the firm, helped grow the firm to where it is today, to where we do all the things I mentioned earlier. In the meantime, I did a stint at the Teacher Retirement System of Texas, where I chaired the Investment Committee and Alternative Assets Committee. And we went from a bottom quartile performer to number one in the country. And we had the number one private equity portfolio for 10 years in our peer group. I tell you, my mom is a retired Texas educator. So thank you for making sure that pension fund is solvent. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm sure it's pr- probably still pretty good now, but yeah, we had a nice run and that included the, you know, the 08 downturn. So yeah, that was a very rewarding time. And then it was really fun to work. You know, I've got family members that are teachers and they're in that plan too. So it was very fun doing that. So, you know, the listeners of this podcast and the clients and prospective clients of Cool Springs are high net worth individuals, ultra high net worth, many own small to mid-sized businesses. And so Obviously, your retirement um, providing solutions that you have, your retirement plan solutions can be of interest to them. But really what I wanted to talk about, Dory, one of the reasons why I asked you on the call is because when you and I met in your office, we had the discussion about, you know, the typical registered investment advisor, financial advisor is just doing, you know, the same old asset class mix, you know, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, equities, things like that. And you brought up you know, bringing alternative deals or different types of investments to the mix. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. This is a problem for a lot of investors. Let's take the $150 billion Texas pension fund plan. So when I got on the board, the asset allocation was mostly 70% stocks, 30% bonds. Some of the bonds were cash maybe 5% were in alternative assets out of the stocks. So this is a problem with big institutions and with individuals. We were the very first public pension fan to adopt a more conservative endowment model. Now, in the minds of many teachers at the time, and I got lots of complaints, they viewed it as a riskier model to go into alternative assets, which individuals may as well. But they got to look at the volatility Stocks are extremely volatile. And if you don't know that, maybe you've been asleep the last 18 months. (laughs) Down, up and down, up and down. And bonds as well. And here you had a year where both bonds and stocks were down. Cash is up. Most people weren't allocated to cash because it wasn't yielding that much. It's a great allocation. But where's the allocation to alternative assets? And if you were in private equity or hedge funds, you offset a lot of that volatility and a lot of that risk. And over the long term, 
those asset classes tend, particularly private equity, tend to outperform the stocks and bonds and cash with less risk than both of those. And risk being defined as that volatility. Okay. So if you're in a diversified private equity fund and in the right hedge funds, you can do very well in lowering that volatility. And that's how we manage money. Define risk, reduce risk, and you'll make more money in the long term. And if the market does this, what you have to do is turn that into your friend. How can I make more money with the volatility? Because I know the stocks don't go like this, and I know that they don't go like that. It does this. The trick is, it's sort of like playing in sports or football or something, right? We keep score. That's how we know we win, right? So how do we do against benchmarks? How do we do against the best money managers in the world? And that's how we do that. And so if we lose 20% in something, we know that we got to make 25% to break even. If we lose 50%, we got to do two X to break even. If I lose 70%, I got to do three X. It's a problem that increases at an increasing rate to the downside. So the trick is what? Lose less. Lose less than the benchmark. Lose less than others. Have your portfolio lose less. The math doesn't work that way on the upside. So you still capture the upside, even if it's less, but it's not exponential. So that's how you win. We reduce risk. We define risk, reduce risk, and we make more money. And it's a great portfolio management. And you can do that with a more diversified portfolio. These financial advisors understand that. The problem is they don't have, a lot of them don't have the expertise or the access to those alternative assets. And I will tell you, it's not all their fault. The market just hadn't been able to provide the products in the last 30 to 40 years, but it's there now. There is there now. So so it's something that the consumer, the investor, the everyday investor really needs to look for to try to find. Yeah, I appreciate that, especially when we talk about, so in our structures, as you remember, and as our listeners might know and remember, if they've been listening for a while, we structure bank financed life insurance deals, high cash value life insurance deals. And we're really agnostic to which type of life insurance we can use. It has to be permanent, but you know, there's different types. There's whole life, universal life, indexed universal life. And then you've got on the variable nature, you've got variable universal and private placement life insurance policies. Banks, when they finance these policies, they want it to be a fixed asset because they can't afford, they will not lend to an asset that can go down when the stock market goes down. So that really restricts us to a whole life, universal life or indexed universal life. And you just brought up a good point. We know that the volatility is there we know that the market doesn't always do this. We know that the market doesn't always do this. It you know, has volatility. And so for the last 15, 20 years, indexed policies have been the place to get that return. Because what we're trying to accomplish is we're trying to create an arbitrage model as an asset class for our high net worth clients, where we're borrowing money at a lower rate and we're earning money in the policy at a higher rate. And the reason why we use the high cash values because we want to put more of that premium dollar to work as opposed to fees and expenses inside of the insurance policies, right? So we're trying to do that for our clients to create an alternative asset class or an additional asset class to their overall portfolio. 
And when we do it and they can start to take distributions from this design, we tell financial advisors all the time that it de-risks the distribution that you're having to work on, right? So let's talk about the four. That was a long-winded way to get to the 4% rule. You know, the adage of when you're retiring, you can take a distribution of 4% of your balances of your investment portfolios. Is that still valid? Does that work? Or is there another way that clients should be looking at it? Well, you know, I think every person is different. It depends on how much money they have and what their needs are and, you know, what their life expectancy is. And then you got to kind of plan past that. It's a decent rule, you know, as a starting point, but I'm kind of more of a customization guy. We kind of do the same thing in retirement plans, 401ks, you know, a target date fund assumes everybody's life, everyone's life goes like this, right? I start out poor and I'll make a whole bunch of money over time. And that's what, so the target date funds change their asset allocation based off your life going like this. I meet very few people whose life is done like most of it's like this. Yeah, like <laughs> the stock like market. market. <laughs> yeah. You know, I had cancer, somebody died, I went broke, I filed bankruptcy, you know, I had needs, I want to buy a boat or, you know, I hit the jackpot, I can take more risk, you know, whatever. And so I like the customized asset allocation distribution for people more so than a generalized. So how big is your firm? What's the headcount today? You know, we're not doing a lot of things for a small firm. We only have 50 people. Yeah. But, so, you know, it depends It's it depends on the how you sell it, right? We're the largest independent investment bank in Texas. <laughs> Everyone else has been bought up. Yeah. Are you but guys for sale? We're proud of that because it creates a very personalized approach to what we do. In addition to we live here, we care about people. We can't, you know, like I, I say, a lot of these big firms have some great products and some great talent and great people, but they can get sued and it's just a lot of the cost of doing business. We can't. So we're extremely very careful about what we do. Yeah. And I respect that because at Cool Springs, we're privately held as well. Sam, the founder, is not interested in selling. In fact, he's told his wife if he were to pass, she's not to sell. I mean, we are going to be privately held for as long as we can see in the future. And we too don't have a line item expense for lawsuits. So over the last, you know, since 2000, when we've done 3000 of these premium finance transactions and we deal with the clientele that's that sue people for sport. Right. I mean, high net worth individuals sue people for sport and we haven't had a single piece of litigation against us that we've lost or really only a couple brought against us. But we've been able to get those removed because there was no basis to the lawsuit. So we kind of hold that as a feather in our cap for the marketplace that we work in. So congratulations on that. Yes. And same to you. You know, I think that's important. And if if you guys ever have trouble staying private, need some capital or something (laughs) like that, let me know because I love your business. And love what you guys do and to kind of turn it around on you. You know, we're talking about asset allocation and taking care of yourself for retirement and all. I'm a firm believer that insurance comes before a bunch of investing, you know, because it's a risk management thing. And I can't really risk manage the portfolio unless I know how much risk you have in your personal life. And a big step in that is the insurance. I agree. And thank you for saying that. Obviously, I'm biased obviously. But when we speak with a client that's still working and earning income, owns businesses and things like that, and we help them understand what the insurance industry, what the life insurance industry says that they qualify for in a death benefit amount, it completely blows their mind, right? Because 
when you have an individual, let's say I have a 50 year old that makes a million dollars a year. Well, the insurance industry says that they can get 20 times multiple on that earning, right? On that million dollars. So that's a $20 million policy. Most of our clients tend to be self-employed individuals that own their own businesses or multiple businesses. And so if they earn any revenue from their business, they're also a key employee. We can get another 10 times on that million. So now we're at 30 million. Then they have the value of their entire estate. And let's say their estate is worth 10 or 15 million. So now we're at 40 to 45 million of life insurance on a guy that owns some businesses that has a solid net worth of maybe $10 million, but makes a million dollars a year. And they qualify for 40 or 45 million worth of life insurance. And they're completely blown away because most people, Dory, to your point, don't buy life insurance that way. The way they buy life insurance is they say, well, you know, I owe this much money to people or my spouse needs this much money when I pass away or die on an annual basis and my kids need this much money. So let me get a $5 million term life insurance policy, right? But at Cool Springs, what we're doing is we're trying to make a big a bucket as possible of 40 to 45 million in this example. And we're trying to jam in as many premiums that the IRS will allow in as little period of time so that cash value grows tax deferred, right? And instead of having our clients use their cash flow or premium out of their pocket, we're financing that with bank loans. And so I'll have people tell me, and I, I know you were recently on a national news broadcast and you were talking about the reason why this recession may not be as difficult as previous recessions is because banks right now have more money than what they've had going into previous recessions. Banks are healthy right now. They're making good, solid loans. We don't have you know, the subprime mortgage lending crisis that we were dealing with in 08, 09. And the banks that we deal with, while yes, the cost of borrowing has gone up over the last year, no one expected a 300% increase in rates as fast as it did. At least we didn't, right? We knew it were going to go up. We just didn't think it was going to go up this fast. It's still relatively cheap money compared to where we are over the last 30 years. And people have recency bias when they look at interest rates. And so very much educational. So yes, to your point, when we structure this the right way, it becomes an asset class in their overall asset allocation mix that while it's somewhat correlated to stock market performance, it doesn't have the risk. And it's not designed to replace an equity. It's designed to be in the bond-like category of returns, that four, five, six percent range. If we can beat the cost of borrowing by two basis point or two hundred basis points or two percent per year, then we'll be just fine. Well, it's it, that's the thing is one, it takes care of insurance, so that's a risk issue. We've decreased risk. Two, it's bond-like, right? So it's going to be more conservative than stocks. Three, it's levered. So we're going to get equity to private equity type returns. Four, it's cash. You know, there's a tax advantage on it, right? So those are all things that I can't give you. Yeah. Right. So, so an investor needs to take advantage of that first because they're getting a double, they're getting a great investment return probably better than what I can get you after tax, much better because it's levered. In addition to you were dealing with the risk side. So it's just kind of a no brainer, really. But that's not what happens. So I'm again, I'm glad you said that. Thank you. And that's not what happens. So by the time someone can qualify for what we do, they have to have about a $10 million net worth, right? Industry standard. 
So they've done it kind of backwards, right? They've already built their businesses and they tend to have existing investment accounts and portfolios. And they're doing, even though they don't know they're doing it, they're doing private equity deals. They're just doing it themselves and they're not doing the due diligence and the research that you bring to the table to do that. And that's why they lose money on them, right? So we come in when wealth is already getting established firmly and we help them accelerate that wealth. But while I would love to get them you know, where we're the first stop on the train, we're actually kind of the last stop on the train in terms of solidifying their portfolio. Yeah, I think, I guess part of the problem, and you know it better than I do, would be that investors kind of go, wow, that's really neat. Let me create a little more liquidity and let me uh, get a little more comfortable. And then I'll try that when they should be. Well, if you want to feel a little bit more comfortable, make this happen. (laughs) Yeah. Then do your other investors. So to the point that I just brought up about research, to find the right deals takes research and analysis and due diligence. Can you speak to your process on how to do that? And then the pitfalls you find with wealthy individuals trying to do their own deals? Yeah, it's pretty tough because it's about flow and market, right? So we're in the flow, we're in the market, we have a team. That's what they do full time. Individuals that sort of what's coming in the door or even family offices. What's coming in the door? You know, maybe they go out and look for stuff. Maybe they don't. But how do you know that you're, what you're seeing is the best of the best? Do you know that you're looking at a top decile, top quartile private equity fund that's just shown up or hedge fund or a deal? How does it compare to what else is out there in the marketplace? You know, underwriting individuals and family offices can learn as well as us, you know, that we do on the institutional side, you know, what's the background check, you know, who are these people, how long they work together, verifying the companies they've invested in, verifying their track record, how do they underwrite, doing due diligence on site, that kind of stuff. They can do that as well if they want to, some do and some don't. But when you combine that with, benchmarking your opportunity to other opportunities is really important because I see a lot of people, you know, oh yeah, I want to invest in your deal, but I just invested in, you know, widgets and widget fund over here. And it's their very first technology venture fund that they've ever done. And there was my brother-in-law and, and, uh, you know, he met some guy off the boat coming out of Vietnam and they decide to do a fund and, you know, whatever the story is, you're kind of like, well, God, you put a lot of thought into that. You can kiss that money goodbye. <laughs> Might as well buy a lottery ticket. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, because I have a saying, just because somebody from New York tells you a Wolverine makes a good house pet doesn't mean you go buy you one. You might want to do some research. <laughs> and they're always from New York, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Not always, but they can. <laughs> So what's an ideal client profile for you guys look like? You know, uh, probably pretty typical for yours too. You know, maybe around 10 million net worth or higher. This owner, they've sold. The bigger, the easier. Yeah. You know, we have some dollar clients as well. But uh, small is fine too. I'll tell you this. You know, I had a call this morning with a guy who's terminally ill. And he probably has 5 million in net worth. And he wanted us to make sure manage his portfolio to take care of his wife. Absolutely. You know, why wouldn't we do that? We're not helping, of course. What about on the legal side of things? I know you're not a a law firm or or an attorney, but obviously when you deal with high net worth individuals and you start seeing their accounts, do you start 
making recommendations or pushing them to certain types of legal structures with CP- with attorneys and law firms? Not as much. We'll make referrals out for that. We're yeah. not as good on the, we're really good on investing or we have ideas about structures and stuff like that, but we'll probably get a, some kind of planner or lawyer or something in, involved in something like that because that starts to get beyond our expertise. We don't yeah, do and I, I didn't mean to service, state planning, any of that stuff. I didn't mean to imply that you guys would provide the legal advice. I just didn't know how deep you guys got right. on that side. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no. Well, okay. So we're going to put a link to Commerce Street onto um, the Premium Finance Show website, put a link to contact you. What parting nuggets of wisdom can you leave with the listeners today? Be careful out there. <laughs> yeah, it's going to, it's the market's going to be choppy for a while. So if you want to get some good, safe returns that are out there, um, you just have to be careful and be willing to listen and sit down and talk to different folks and their opinions and see what makes the most sense. But uh, never stop using your common sense and asking questions. What do you think, just real quick, what do you think about the R word, you know, the recession? Are we in it or is it going to be soft? Is it going to be hard? Like, what do you think on that? Well, you just hit the nail on the head. It's not whether we're going to be in a recession. It's how bad is it going to be? So we had a pretty bad one in 08. It wasn't a depression, but it was close. The depression, 20 to 24% unemployment. I just don't see that. In fact, unemployment's held up amazingly well. Much of the chagrin of the Fed, they're trying to get it up because then they know what they're doing is working, but they don't want it to skyrocket. They know if they get it up a little bit, wage inflation will decrease and inflation will come down and reduce some of that pressure. So I suspect we'll have a soft one. Like you mentioned earlier, the banks are much stronger, much less leverage than they did in 08. And the key thing is market's just a little ahead of itself right now. So making good investment choices, good diversification. I mean, you you hear that earnings reports are like baked in a year in advance in the market, right? And it's just really about market sentiment and how it's responding to things. But really, you even the Fed funds, right? They come out and they're expecting either a quarter basis point or 50 basis point, whenever they come out, but the market's already pricing that in a week or two in advance. Yeah. Or even more so. Now this first, they did hike 25 basis points, which I thought was interesting because in December, it was all about 50 basis points. And that was what was resonating with the Fed. So I think the market won over January. It won in pushing the Fed to 25 basis points, which it hadn't been able to do all year. So I think that's kind of interesting. So the Fed's maybe backing off a little bit. You mentioned earnings. The street's been cutting earnings expectations like crazy. And I would say the misses for the most recent year-end earnings releases have been quite a bit below average and earnings are going to have to be cut more. And when you look at that, we're still at a forward PE or a PE ratio of 19 or 20 on S&P and we're cutting the earnings right and left. You know, we're starting to get some layoffs. So I think the market's a little high here. We don't need to be trading at a normal PE ratio and it needs to be about a 15. And you take that off, you know, that's a, that's what 20% drop. Yeah. Yeah, that is a big drop. Wonderful. Thank you for your time, Dory. Appreciate it. You know, I think people will be reaching out to you as a result of this. I mean, we obviously have some clients that we're going to recommend that they reach out and talk to you. Be safe, have fun, and I'll talk to you soon. Okay. You bet. Thanks for your time, John. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Dory. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. There we have it. Another great episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at 
premiumfinanceshow.com. And you can find out more about all the ways we can help you at coolspringsfinancial.com. That's it for this episode. Have a great week and we'll talk to you next time.